Well, we're in this series called Celebrate, and we're today finishing up this series. We've been going through the seven Jewish festivals that God gave his people Israel 3,500 years ago. Each one of them, we're seeing the character of God and how it points to Messiah. And once we understand that Jesus, and we look back at Jesus and how he fulfills them, then the Jews had a thing to celebrate without a Messiah, looking for the Messiah. We know the Messiah, and we can look back and see the fulfillment of these, and our joy should even be doubled. We should be able to go back and truly be a people who can celebrate a God who has done as we've looked through each of these seven festivals. Today, we're at the sixth festival. You say, Pastor, you don't add very well. You said we're at the last one, but this is number six. Well, it's because we started the series at number seven. Do you remember that? Because we actually started it on the Festival of Booths with David Brickner. So uh, we, we then went back and got in order, and today we're at six. This is the holiest of all of the festivals. And you're going to understand why today and why it's important for you and I to grab a hold of this truth. So let me just ask you a few questions to get it started. How many of you have ever struggled with the opinions of other people? How many of you ever felt like you had to live up to their expectations, that you had to do something to earn them to appreciate or approve of you, and you felt less than someone else? How many of you have ever felt like you couldn't do enough to be accepted by God either? That, that God in his holiness and you and your mess could never reach God. Or, or if you did, you were going to have to work your way there. You're going to have to earn your way there. I was sharing the gospel with a man one time, and he told me, once I stop drinking, once I stop cussing, once I stop slipping around, once I stop all these, and he lists all his sins, then I'll go to God and be saved. And I had to look at the man and tell him, with that mindset, I got to tell you, you'll never get saved. Because you can't work your way to God. You can't get there because you cleaned yourself up good enough. How many of you have realized by now with all the work you've done to try to be approved by others or approved by God that, the, that your worst enemy is the man or the woman you look at every morning when you walk into the bathroom and you look in the mirror? How many has ever looked at that person and said, you, I, just, I just don't get you? You ever been there? We all have. In fact, it goes all the way to the Garden of Eden and this has been the battle we have all fought ever since and we've all fought this battle because we, we feel like we don't measure up to others and we have to prove ourselves to other people and then that goes on to our walk with God. We don't feel like we're good enough for God. We gotta work our way to God and God can't accept us because of how messed up we are and it goes all the way back to the Garden. Let me ask you this question. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, why did they hide themselves? See, here's something you need to understand when you read the Bible. You gotta go back there and you gotta see. And, and a lot of times you'll just pass over this. Don't pass over it, it's in there for a reason. The Bible says that God would come in the cool of the evening and walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. Can you imagine every afternoon when it started to settle down, God in his spirit, his presence would come into the garden and Adam and Eve and God would take a stroll in the garden. Can you imagine the beauty and the power of that relationship. Just walking with God in the garden. What kind of conversation would you have with God in the garden that he created? Hey, God, what were you thinking when you made that rose over there? That is beautiful. Eve's like, oh, I love roses. 
And then you hear Adam going down a little bit later and he sees a giraffe and he says, hey God, man, dude, you got a great sense of humor. Why'd you give him such a long neck? Right? I mean, what were you thinking there, right? It's like, oh, I'm gonna cut the shrubs on the top of the tree, right? Because you know, God, me, I ain't cutting the shrubs up there that high, right? So that's why we got a giraffe. I, you can hear Eve going, I love lions. I love lions. They're just such big, pretty kitties. And I just get up in their mane and just, oh, I love, right? You know, you, what kind of conversation would you have with God? And every day you had this relationship. That was until the day that Eve Listen to the voice of a serpent. And that's a whole other sermon, but nowhere in the scripture does Eve, is Eve caught off guard when the snake talks. And all of a sudden, Eve uh, listens to this serpent, gets in a conversation, and, and you know what the devil does. The devil says, did God really say that? He put a question mark where God put an exclamation point. And, and all of a sudden, she questioned it, and she ate of the tree. What kind of tree was it? You remember? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that the moment she ate it, she gave it to her husband. They began to play the blame game. But here's what really happened. Their eyes were opened. And for the first time, for the first time, Adam and Eve, what did they realize? What did Satan do by tempting them and causing them to eat of the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? For the first time in human history, they understood how perfect God was and how imperfect they were. Because up to this moment, all they knew was the goodness of God. They didn't have any conception of imperfection, any conception of ungood. They, they didn't know what evil was. It's why that's the one tree God was trying to protect them from. It was the one tree God did not want them to eat from because he knew what would happen. Their eyes would be open, but it's the one tree Satan wanted them to eat of because Satan loved what happened next. And since the Garden of Eden, we have been running around knowing how perfect God is and how imperfect we are. And, and can, I just, can I just say this? We're all mentally ill from the garden because we know we cannot do anything to get up to God. And then we take that negativity and that self-loathing and we put it not only in our relationship with God, I gotta work and prove my way to God, but we throw it off on all our other relationships. And now all of a sudden, we judge one another by one imperfect version to another imperfect version and, and you can't live up to my expectations and I can't live up to your expectations. And then we try to prove our worth to each other one imperfect vessel toward another imperfect vessel, all because we don't feel like we can be perfect enough for each other nor for God. Are you with me? Is this too deep? Are y'all okay out there? It, it creates a cycle that Satan has set back since the beginning of time and he has laughed and he's watching us and it's only gotten worse as society has moved on because of now all of these technology advances that we have and we just, keep, listen, Satan has no new tricks. I'm gonna talk about this next Sunday. He just keeps dressing up the same old ones and we keep falling back into this. Um, why is today important? Because what if I told you that God created the sixth festival to take care of that problem all the way back in the garden? to tell you there is something God has done for you that if you can receive it and accept it, it will take away this idea that you have to perform in order to be accepted by Almighty God. And listen, listen, listen. If you stay with me to the end of the sermon, say, I will. 
All right, I'm going to hold you to it. If you stay with me to the end of the sermon, here's what I'm going to tell you. At the end of the sermon, you will know why we can celebrate because it may sound like some bad news up front, but guys, you got to know the bad news before the good news sounds good. But then by the end, if you stay with me in the end, we're going to walk out of here with our head held up high celebrating a God who did for us what we could not do for ourselves because if you can have peace with God, it doesn't matter about the opinions of others. They'll lose their control over you if you can get the ultimate relationship started off right. Amen? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into this because the devil has been lying since the Garden of Eden. He's the same voice that spoke to Eve is speaking into you and into me and tells us you're never going to make it. You're never going to be good enough. God won't accept you. People won't accept you. And so what we do is we get in this performance trap cycle and we're trying to live the perfect life. Can I tell you, perfectionism is a disease where you're trying to, uh, you're, trying, you're judging yourself by your achievements. You're judging your worth by your achievements. And the problem is we're all sinners and we can't be perfect all the time. So we're constantly letting our own selves down. We get in this performance track. The words of a perfectionist are words like this, I must I should, I ought to, if only I had of. I must, I should, I ought to, if only I had of. And in every conversation they have, they're always thinking of how they should have, what they would have, how they could have been better. There's no peace, no contentment. Listen, perfectionism is a disease that promises rewards, but steals joy and satisfaction. And people's lives are being ruined by this idea. And it all stems back to the garden. I saw a couple of uh, research projects put on by Psychology Today. And one of them stated this. And I thought it was very eye-opening. It says this, perfectionists tend to think, feel, and act in a way that can lead to depression. How many of you have ever been depressed because you felt like you just weren't worthy enough? Good enough. Every one of us should raise our hands. We've all battled those blue Mondays, right? The dimensions of perfectionism include self-doubt, self-criticism, concern over mistakes, watch this, and unrealistic standards for yourself and for others. You live by a set of standards you can't keep up with and you expect everyone else to do so too. Listen, we have this happen to our church all the time. People see one of you wearing our logo and you're not acting perfect. And they're like, see, that, that, that's what that church is full of. And here's my response to that. Amen to that. We're proud to be a church of imperfect people. That's why we let all y'all come in here today. And you got an imperfect pastor and we're all in this thing together. Thank God for the gospel. That's for imperfect people. And when you get all your stuff together, you can come join us. Because <laughs> ain't nobody perfect, amen? So come join us anyway. That's what I should say. Just having fun. Here we go. Here's the second piece of uh, research I, uh, I was given I thought was great. It says, new research finds that self-critical perfectionism predicted more depression and symptoms of low body appreciation in girls who use social media. How many parents are in the room? Let me hear from you. That's, you know, you're loud until this, because you know I'm setting you up, don't you? All right, that's all right, that's all right. I'll come back to you, I'll get you back. 
Because my girls, we give our kids this, this weapon in their hand called a cell phone. And, and now what happens on social media is it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the same lie Satan's saying, you gotta prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. You're imperfect, you're imperfect, you're imperfect. And so what we've done with social media is, is we try to capture the one 15 second moment in a 24 hour period that looks like we got it all together and we throw that out on social media and then when you get bombarded with everybody's 15 seconds, you're sitting back looking at it and going, wow, they're so cool. Wow, they got it all together. Wow, they got a perfect family while they know everybody, while everybody loves them, wow, they got it. Man, they are rock stars. And then you look back in the mirror and you go, what, what, how am I gonna measure up? We've given them a loaded weapon. And now listen, there's nothing wrong with having a cell phone, nothing wrong with social media when it's used right. But you as parents need to be aware that we're in a fallen world and there's a real devil that uses the same tool that can be used for good, he can use it for bad. And so we gotta have wisdom and we gotta understand what's going on. You see, the sense of trying to prove ourselves not only affects our relationship with each other, it affects our relationship with God. And I could say it this way, because we struggle having a relationship with God, we have problems with people. One feeds the other, they're two sides of the same coin. And we need to understand this. So today, we're gonna jump into this sixth festival. And I propose to you that if we dive into it and we see something that Jesus did to fulfill this day of atonement, if you and I let this sink in, we're gonna walk out of here just like the Jewish people celebrating a God who can make us worthy. And it has nothing to do with our ability. It has everything to do with this one word. What a beautiful word it is. Grace. Are you ready for this? So let's dive into it. 3,500 years ago, God told uh, Moses to have the people to start celebrating every year, shout every year, every year a festival called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Look with me at Leviticus 23 and you'll see the command here. The Lord again spoke to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. You are to hold a sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You are to be to present a food offering to the Lord. And on this particular day, you are not to do any work for it's a day of atonement to make atonement for yourself before the Lord, your God. Now, if you were with me last Sunday or you watched or listened, you know we talked about the Feast of Trumpets last week, right? And at the Feast of Trumpets, they would begin 10 days called the 10 days of all. 10 days, it starts on the first day of the seventh month, the month of Tishri. And it's 10 days of self-reflection, where you ask yourself, where am I at with God? Where am I at with people? Do I have any alt with God? Do I have any alt with people? You go into repentance. Repentance is, okay, where, where did I go off wrong? I'm gonna change that. I'm gonna confess that. I'm giving that to the Lord. I'm, I'm gonna make that right. Then through confession of your sin to God and confession to the people you've hurt, you reconcile, you make reconciliation. And it's 10 days of, of reflection, repentance, and reconciliation. On the 10th day, is the day of atonement. This is the holiest day. It comes after you've had time to get alone with God, get on your knees and say, here's some areas I need to change. We've all been there, amen? And the Lord reveals things to us. We need to be cleansed. How many of you have confessed and made reconciliation only to have the devil come back to you three weeks later and remind you of all your sin and make you feel just as guilty today as he did back then? Anybody heard that happen? 
All of us. So watch this. Here's what they would do. On that 10th day, they would call a sacred assembly and everybody would come together and the high priest would come and bring a sacrifice of a bull for himself and his family. Why? Because he's a man and he's a sinner and his family has sinned. No, no preacher's family is perfect, y'all. Y'all know that, right? We all need forgiveness. And so he would have to go sacrifice a, lamb, a, a, a bull for himself and he would go one time a year. It's the only time he gets to do this, is Day of Atonement. He could go into the temple and, and what you need to know about the ancient temple of Jerusalem, God gave them the d- design. There was an outer courtyard where the sacrifices were made and people gathered. Then the priest would go into the inner chamber and ceremonies would take place there. And then there was another chamber behind this thick curtain, this thick veil. And behind that curtain was called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat of God. And the priest was only allowed in that room one time a year. It's the holiest room. It's where the presence of God dwelt in the form of a cloud. And and he would walk into that room with the blood of the bull and he would sprinkle it at the mercy seat at the altar in front and on each side for his sins and his family's sins. So now the high priest has been atoned for. Then he would go out and get two goats. Everybody shout two. It's very important you get this. One of them will be sacrificed. One of them is a goat sacrifice for the sins of the community. And he'd take that blood and he'd go right back into that inner chamber and innermost chamber and he would drip the blood there in front and on each side of the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the people. Then he would go get the second goat and he would take his hands and he'd lay his hands on the second goat and confess the sins of the people. Man, I'm glad we don't have to do this no, no more. It'd take me all day to confess your sins to God. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Mine too, come on. He'd lay his hands on the head of that old goat. He'd confess the sins and then they would take that goat, watch this now, outside the city, out in the desert, they'd find a desolate place where that goat was gonna wander around and die and never be able to make it back to the city. It was called a scapegoat. How many's ever heard the term scapegoat? Now you know where it comes from. Why is this so important? Watch this, watch this, watch this. What was God symbolizing here? It was all shadow of a better day to come. What was it shadowing? The high priest has to be atoned for. He has to have his sins forgiven to be able to come into the presence of God. Just because he's a priest doesn't make him holier than you. He had to be atoned for as well. He had to come into the presence of the Father. He had to have a goat, the blood of a goat, to atone for the sins of the people. So now, because of a blood sacrifice, the the sins could be atoned for. But wait a minute, God wants more than just them covered up. So he put them on a goat and sent it out in the wilderness. The scapegoat, never to return. God was saying, I'll atone for your sins through the blood, but through the scapegoat, they'll be taken away, never to be brought back against you again. How many say that's something to celebrate right there? When they're forgiven, they're gone. Amen? Let me show you a picture of what this temple would have looked like now that I've explained it to you. So you have the two goats here. One of them would have been sacrificed. One would have been the scapegoat. You have the inner chamber there with the table of showbread, the altar. You see the veil there, and the veil is separating that back chamber, the Holy of Holies where the ark was, and that's where the priest could go one time a year, but here's the deal. He had to do it every 
year. And the people would celebrate. Why? Because of 10 days of repentance and 10 days of reflection and 10 days of reconciliation. And they're like, man, I still never gonna be good enough. And, and the priest would say, but today is a day of celebration because your sins have been atoned for. You can go in peace with God for another year. Come back here next year, same place, same time though, okay? Don't miss next year. You gotta get back here. And so they would celebrate. and It was a great celebration. And you say, but why the blood of the lamb? Listen to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 22. The reason God required these blood sacrifices, he said this, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it's the lifeblood that makes atonement, a life for a life. The life of the innocent animal for your guilty sins. And it was all a shadow of another day coming. When God would send into the world, you listen to me now, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, his son, Jesus. And so I, I'd say this to you, how is it <clears throat> that what Jesus is about to do, that I'm about to show you that he did, can take away this idea that we have to prove ourselves? Well, look again at what all happened on the Day of Atonement, and now let's look at Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled it. And here's what you're gonna see. Write this down, number one, on your message notes. Is here's what I hope that you gather today, and that's this, that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself so that you could receive from God what you could never earn, acceptance. God, through Jesus, did for you what you could never do for yourself so that you could receive what you could never earn on your own, and that's to be accepted before Almighty God. Look at Hebrews chapter nine, and here's where, um, here's where the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to help a Jewish audience understand that Jesus is the Messiah, and he accomplished the day of atonement. He fulfilled it. He would write this, Hebrews nine and verse 11. But Christ, you see it, has been, appeared as a, what's those next two words? Circle them. High priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Not made by hands. That is not of this creation. So I showed you a picture of Solomon's temple and I'm gonna tell you that when Jesus died upon the cross, he did not enter that temple. He did enter the temple in heaven because the one on earth is just a replica of the temple of heaven. And there's another holy of holies and it's where God's throne really is. His true presence dwells. Look at what Hebrews says. Verse 12, he entered the most holy place. How many times? The next four words are vital for you to have proper theology of salvation. Say them with me. Are you ready? Once for all time. Remember the priest had to go every year. Now we're reading that Jesus is our high priest and he went into God's holy temple once and for all. What did he go into God's temple with? Not the blood of bulls and goats and calves. Read with me now, underline this, but with his own blood. And what did he receive? What did he obtain for us by taking his blood into God's heavenly throne room? He has obtained for us, what's the next two words? Eternal redemption, not annual redemption, not weekly redemption, 
eternal redemption once and for all. Look at verse 15 now. Therefore, he is the, circle this key word, say it together, ready, go, mediator of what? Not the old covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal life because a death has taken place for redemption for the transgressions has been committed under the first covenant. This is you and I in here. And Jesus says, our mediator who took his own blood and our place to forgive us of our sin. Let me show you a little more to this on the screen. Look at verse 24. It was too much for your outline. It says, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for who? Who did Jesus go up there for? Not himself, for us. Look at the next verse. He did not do this to offer himself many times, but as as the high priest entered the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another, next verse, read it now. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared how many times? One time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen to me. Jesus is not being perpetually crucified. He's not being crucified over and over and over and over for your sins. When you take communion, he's not being re-crucified. He's done that once for all time. And just as it's appointed for people to die once after this comes judgment, we know that. In the same manner that you believe that, he's saying, believe this. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He is coming back, but when he comes back this time, look at it. Not to bear sin, read, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. How many of you are waiting for him? Now look at Hebrews 10. Read with me now. For by one offering, how many? Once he has done what? What's that word? It's the whole issue of our sermon today. It's what we've been talking about ever since the Garden of Eden. What did we lose in the garden? For by one offering he has, say it, perfected. How long? Forever. Those who are sanctified. Those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, once and for all, Jesus paid for your sin debt. He opened the door. He paved the way for you to be accepted by God. Not your works. Not how hard you're working to get to God. Not how many good deeds you're doing. And listen to me. Let me remind you of this. If you can get this relationship down right, it changes all your other relationships. Because if you realize you don't have to get in the performance trap to get God to accept you, then why do you think anyone else has to, you have to perform to get them to accept you? Because watch this, watch this, watch this. Jesus, when he went to the cross, watch this, he became high priest, sacrificial lamb, and scapegoat all three in one for you. That's why he gets to be the mediator. He gets to be the one that stands between you and holy God and says, I've forgiven them. They're mine. 
no one can pluck them out of my hand. You know, in about a month, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And what are we going to celebrate Christmas? We're going to celebrate this crazy thing that shocks the world when we talk about God became a man. And uh, a virgin conceived and had a baby, Emmanuel, God with us, Son of God. I'm giving you my whole Christmas series. My goodness. Same series every year. Amen. I mean, I mean, what else do you want? That's what we're celebrating, right? Why a virgin? Why a virgin birth? See, in Jew- Jewish culture, it's viewed that sin is passed on from the father to the child. The curse of sin passes down from Adam, passes down from the father. Hey, men, when well, all your wives all these years have been telling you men are the problem, yep, they were right. Here's Bible proof for it. All right, we're the problem. All right, sin's passed down from us. Why was he virgin born? Godly or earthly mother, so he could take on human flesh, but God was his heavenly father. Why? So that the world would understand and no one would say, or everyone could understand why Jesus had no sin nature. Sins passed down from the father, not the mother. His heavenly father was his father. God became a man, fully God and fully man all at the same time. Does that rock your world? Ought to, it's awesome. It's what kind of God we serve. Fully God, fully man. So watch this, watch this, watch this. When Jesus went to the cross and he entered into God's heavenly throne room, how could he do that? Because he had no sins to atone for for himself. He didn't need a bull. He didn't need a calf. He didn't need any beef offering. He was sinless from the beginning. He could walk into God's heavenly throne room, his father's throne room, because he was God himself. And he was sinless. And he walked in there with his own blood, not the blood of a goat, his own blood. And his own blood, he, had, he, sacri- he had poured it out there at the mercy seat in the front and on each side. And then he, the scapegoat, took our sin and he was crucified outside the city gates. And the psalmist says, when he forgives you, when Messiah forgives you, your sins are far as the east is from the west and they never come back. That's what Jesus has done so you could be accepted to God. Look up here. And when that serpent's voice gets back in your ear and says, you'll never get to God. You're not worthy. You're never going to be good enough. You tried, you did good for about six weeks and then you blew it. I want you to remember this. Something's not, listen, how do we, how do we know how much something's actually worth? Anything is worth how much someone's willing to pay for it. Think about it. How much is, you know, we all fuss about inflation right now. It's not going to go back down. You know why? Because we keep buying stuff. And we're like, well, that gallon of milk's gone up 120%, but I'm still buying it, so it's worth it. That house is really inflated right now, but I like it, and I want it. I, I, buy, right? I like that car. Cars are really expensive right now. But anything is worth the value you pay for it. So here's what I want you to remember when Satan puts that thought back in your mind. Number two on your message notes, write this down. Your worth is found in the price Jesus offered for you. And let me ask you this. Is there any higher price Jesus could have paid? No, not at all. He gave you his life. He left heaven's throne, came to this earth, died and rose again because God wants you 
to be accepted. Don't listen to that liar tell you you'll never be accepted by God. Number three on your message notes, I want you to get hold of this. God today is not looking for your perfection. God's looking for your faithfulness. And there's a huge difference. God's looking for your faithfulness. Isn't it funny how we struggle with the performance trap even after we become a Christian? Think about this. So it's happened so much and I'm almost done. People struggle with accepting grace, salvation by grace alone because we got, I'm not gonna, I gotta earn it. And God says, you can't earn it. Jesus paid it all. He's high priest, he's scapegoat, and he's your offering. Jesus did all of it. He filled all the rows. There's no row for you to do something for your salvation. You mean I gotta accept that? That's exactly what you do. That's hard for me, exactly. Accepting grace by for, uh, 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 on Christ alone may be the hardest decision some of you have ever made. And this reason why some of you hadn't even made it yet. You're still pushing and working and earning it because you feel like you got to. And I'm here to tell you, you can be free from that and receive it. You don't earn it. You don't do something for God's grace. You receive God's grace. And when you understand that Jesus is the one who made you worthy, well, if there's nothing you can do to prove yourself to God, why are you proving yourself to others? God in his grace has offered you salvation. And watch this, listen to it for a moment. We, we, we come to grace and we receive it and we say, thank you, Lord, for salvation. And then we leave and the devil gets right back in your mind. And now there's grace you received by grace. You believe you can only keep by works. How does that work? It doesn't. God's not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your faithfulness. I want to show you a verse. Two verses. Galatians 3, 3 says this. Look on your message notes. Are you so foolish after beginning in the spirit that you're trying to finish in the flesh? You didn't receive your salvation by your works and you're not going to keep your salvation by your works. You can't start in the spirit and then end up in the flesh. Here's the better prayer. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 10, and this is my prayer for all of us, that by the grace of God, we can say this, I am what I am. And his grace toward us was not in vain. How many of you can say today, the grace of God's not been poured out on you in vain? You can say that once you accept God's grace and you say, now I'm not gonna, it's not gonna be in vain that he accepted that on me. I'm not gonna try to blow his grace by earning it after I receive it. On the contrary, though, watch this, watch this, watch this. I work harder than any of them. Say that line with me. I work harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Here's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I had to come to terms understanding I couldn't earn my salvation. He did nothing to deserve the Damascus Road experience. It was all grace. But he said, now I work harder since I've been saved, not to keep my salvation and not to earn my salvation, he says, I'm working from my salvation. It's the grace working through me. And listen, I want to tell you, there's, there's freedom from the performance trap when you get this. We're saved by grace. And I love this quote. Ready? I want to show you this quote from a guy named William Griffith. He said this, William Henry Griffith Thomas. He says, I will not work my soul to save for that my Lord, Lord alone has done. Shout, day of atonement. Sound Jesus on the cross right there, all right? 
That my Lord alone has done. But here's the next piece, you right? You ready? But I will work like any slave because I'm loved by God's dear son. Paul says, I work harder than anybody. Why? Because I'm saved by grace. I want everyone to know when they see my life and the change and the transformation and they say, man, you're a good person. Man, you're a good dude. Man, you turned your life around. You need to look back at him and say, no, I didn't. And no, I'm not. I want to tell you how good God's grace is. Jesus forgave me. Jesus turned my life around. Jesus made me what I am today. Amen? How many of you want that freedom? You see, we work not for salvation, but from salvation. If you're one of those that says, I'm saved by grace, and you have no heart for God, no love for God, you, you go out and sin all the time, you know, you know, trapped by all your old sins, you're not changed a bit, but you prayed a little prayer and got baptized as a kid, I have to tell you, you're not truly saved. I doubt your salvation. Salvation is not simply praying a little prayer, it's surrendering your life to Christ. And you can pray that prayer with me in a moment, but it won't mean nothing unless you're surrendering your life to the one who did all this for you so that you could be accepted. See, here's the big takeaway. I want you to write this down. I know I kept you a few minutes over. Y'all all right with that? Just a few minutes. I won't keep you that long. But I want to make sure you got a hold of this as we finish, as we finish up these feasts. Look at the big takeaway. You see, it's when you put your faith in Christ alone That's your acceptance of God accepting you. When you start trusting in Christ alone by faith and not your works, that is you telling God, I accept God that because of everything Jesus did for me and not what I can do for me, that now God has accepted me. And if you can believe God's accepted you, it'll help you get off the performance trap And what other people say about you doesn't mean near as much if you know God, the only one that really matters, says, I accept you. You're mine. Amen.